Today, we are geeking out. We're talking data, economics, and everything in between for the seven-county metropolitan area surrounding Minneapolis-St. Paul. I'll have David Arbit, Chief Economist of the Minneapolis Association of Realtors, with me on the show. Welcome to the Tom Mecky Real Estate Podcast. Tom Mecky is a licensed real estate broker working with Lake Sotheby's International Realty in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area. Now, here's Tom Mecky. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Mecky with Lake Sotheby's International Realty, and thanks for listening. Today on the show, we are going to go geek, talking about data and the current economics for the Minneapolis-St. Paul real estate market. With me, as always, is Marshall Saunders, the host of Minnesota Podcasting. Hi, Tom. How's it going? It's going great, Marshall. Thanks for being here. Hey, my pleasure. And our special guest is David Arbit, Chief Economist for the Minneapolis Association of Realtors. David, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. Well, appreciate it. <laughs> so tell me what's going on in the uh, seven-county metro uh, real estate market surrounding Minneapolis-St. Paul. Yeah, so the sort of high-level overview is that um, the market's still pretty healthy, although um, the, one of the things we've been saying is that there are some changes we're seeing on the horizon. So uh, we're seeing home selling quickly. We're still seeing prices rising. Um, we're seeing some increases in seller activity. Buyer activity came down a little bit last year. We think that's because inventory is so low, among some other reasons. Um, rates kind of spiked up to 5%. Now they're back down to about 4 and a quarter, 4 and a half. Um, so that doesn't seem to be a prohibitive factor. Um, again, homes are selling quick for uh, full list price, sometimes over, if you're priced right. Um, of course. And yeah, you know, sellers are, are pretty happy and buyers should be pretty happy. Although I, I think the big sort of drawback, if you're a buyer, is your options have been limited. So we know that inventory has been pretty low and that means buyers uh, find themselves in sort of multiple offers and bidding. And so it's been a little competitive. So we're looking for more supply this spring to sort of balance things out a bit. Well, tell me more about that. I mean, everybody talks about more supply, but I, I kind of find that to be a little bit, um, well, there's an asterisk there, right? I mean, are, are we talking about all price ranges? I mean, can you put a little more context behind that statement? Absolutely. Yeah. Really good question. So what we find is uh, the the most challenging part of the market to build in is the entry level. So some call it under two, under 250, you know, under three, really that sort of uh, two to three range, maybe even two to 350 um, is sort of a, a, a sweet spot that's really undersupplied and there's so much demand for it. Why? Well, you've got millennials entering the market who have delayed home ownership and who have been renters for a while um, and they're looking for, you know, affordable monthly payments, uh, you know, that aren't totally crazy like San Francisco and Manhattan. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and uh, really, I, I think our data shows, uh, when we look at the MLS data, it kind of confirms that we've been doing a pretty good job of building on the high end, right? So sure. over half a million, you know, o over three quarters of a million um, is doing fine. Why? Well, that's where the margins are, right? The builders, after the condo bubble sort of burst and then the housing bubble burst in 05, 06, the builders took their investment dollar and they went to the suburbs. They were doing single family luxury New subdivisions, uh, you know, in the Blaines, Lakevilles, Woodberries, Minatristas of the metro. Sure, yeah, all, all those, all those lovely areas and beyond. Um, and so they were able to sort of find the margins and, and the least barriers to entry in that segment. When really a lot of millennials are still looking for urban, 
townhomes, condos, single family in the city, and and that's not the product that's on the market right now. Well, yeah, I know it's been tough. It's I mean, been I've, tough. I've experienced it myself working with buyers. Tell me why why aren't there more builders trying to get into entry level housing? I mean, there's so much press around the need for it. You would think one would figure out a way to do it. What's going on there that's preventing them from doing it? Yeah, Tom. So we like to cite uh, four factors, and uh, I call them the four L's. Okay. Lots, labor, lending, and lumber. Okay. Kind of a nice... Uh, Tell me more. Do you call that a mnemonic, or is that onomatopoeia, or I can't remember what that is. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's something. Um, so uh, th- those are the four factors that are sort of uh, holding back builders and, and new construction, um, and they're sort of preventing you know buyers from having more options and, and more, more product to choose from. So uh, I can go through those really briefly. Um, lots. Shortage of lots drives lot prices higher. That means that each unit or each door has to be profitable. So when you're paying more for lots, you have to sell the units for more. Of course. Uh, Labor. It only makes sense. Labor, right? We're celebrating our really low unemployment rate, rightly so, but that has really put a squeeze on builders, especially when it comes to skilled labor and the skilled trades. So spray foam, roofers, framers, electric, you know, plumbing, electric, you name it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the contractors that I normally work with for small projects, I give them a call and I'm just like, hey guys, uh, am I dead to you? What's going on? And I mean, I can't even get a call back from the guys I've uh, worked with over it's the tough. years. Yeah. It's tough. Um, so yeah, so so labor, uh, unemployment rate in the metro, I think is about two, two and a half percent, really, really low. Again, mm-hmm. a good thing, but um, it means there's not a lot of folks sitting in the dugout waiting to get brought onto the playing field. Sure. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. So, so lots of labor. Lending. So mortgage lending is doing okay. There's still some qualified buyers who can't get um, qualified. So, you know, we think that does need some work, but the lending that we're really talking about is ADC, Acquisition Development and Construction Loans. Okay. Banks are still a little bit risk averse. They're still, um, the time they got burned 10 years ago is still a little fresh. The cuts are a little fresh. Oh, yeah. So they don't, you know, they're being pretty conservative with their capital. I would probably be as well. Sure. Um, And then lumber. Um, (laughs) We did some lumber tariffs uh, a year or two ago. We did. We did. And, and, uh, you know, tariffs are, are taxes that are always passed on to the consumer. Especially with two by six framing uh, compared to two by four framing uh, from you know ten twenty years ago, um, it's more lumber per your average house. And so, when you're paying more for lumber, a twenty five percent tariff on Canadian pine, um, again, that increased lumber cost has to be passed on to consumers. Believe it or not, Tom, builders aren't charities, and they don't want to eat that in their margins, and they shouldn't have to. No, I agree with you on that. Yeah. Okay. So that really is a nice, uh, creates kind of a nice segue here to talk about affordable housing. I mean, how does a city like Minneapolis or a city like St. Paul uh, accomplish the goal of developing affordable housing for its residents? Yeah. So this is a pretty challenging question, and cities across the country have struggled with it. We're moving toward sort of comprehensive zoning, um, you know, comprehensive, you know, in, in Instead of, say, you know, you have to build 30% or 20% of your units affordable, maybe you can contribute to a fund in lieu of those affordable units. 
they don't make sense everywhere, right? right? They make sense in certain places. We're trying to concentrate some of that around, you know, transit lines and, and uh, transportation nodes and corridors, if you will, um, because that makes sense. You know, folks who need affordable housing don't have as high rates of car ownership as single family owners in the suburbs. So they got to have a way to get to jobs if we want those folks to work, as Absolutely. I think most of us do. Sure. Um, so, you know, affordable housing, I think, is, again, that sort of missing piece um, the missing puzzle piece that everybody's talking about. So, you know, more deliberate zoning, um, things like ADU ordinances that are helping a little bit in Minneapolis. Explain what an ADU ordinance is. Yeah, help me out on this one, Tom. Is it auxiliary? Accessory, accessory dwelling accessory, unit. Accessory dwelling unit. So the granny is, garage. The granny flats, yeah, <laughs> above the garage or, or you know, maybe a, a, a Four Seasons, hopefully sunroom off the back or, or something. Sure. Um, you know, uh, ways to add some inventory sort of in a clever way. But also it gives homeowners, especially those experiencing financial challenges, it gives them the freedom to get some revenue uh, and help offset their mortgage and their housing costs or taxes, uh, even if it's owned outright. You know, sometimes people need a little bit of help. So that flexibility is a good thing. Um, You know, uh, grants, gap financing, um, some of the more creative bridge loans and financing that we're seeing happening can help a little bit. But there's a huge need out there and we're just not meeting it. Do you think that uh, in order to achieve um, what our what our city leaders might consider to be affordable housing would come with a subsidy uh, from a taxpayer perspective? Possibly, I think there's that's part of the solution. But one of the one of the options that people may like more, especially the builders and developers, um, they want to have that flexibility uh, again of doing maybe paying in, into a fund in lieu of some of that. Sure. Or can we do tax incentives? Can we do tax credits on the back end? Instead of using tax subsidy, maybe we can do some tax incentives or benefits on the back end. Sure. Two-year property tax abatements, you know, something clever. Um, TIFs. You know, a TIF. It's a little bit rare unless you have huge cleanup. Um, you know, I don't know if the Ford site did one, but that would be, you know, an example of uh, something that, that could be done in that site. Uh, so, yeah, people are having to get a little bit creative. Funding is is thin, uh, and and the need is great. So there's a a big sort of asymmetry there. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, one of the other things I've heard you mention is that even though prices are what seem to be at an all-time high in the Minneapolis-St. Paul market, the cost of ownership hasn't necessarily – uh, you know, risen in in conjunction with that. Can you can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this is a really this is a really important point. Um, <laughs> My fear and our fear is that consumers read the Star Tribune yep. or Care 11 or Fox 9 or, or whatever, uh, and they're seeing, hey, you know, prices are at all-time highs. And, and, and they're having conversations on the phone or in person with their loved ones or, or partners or whomever saying, you know, I, I don't know, honey, maybe home prices have risen a little bit too far, a little bit too fast. Sure. Are we priced out? Uh, are we doomed to be renters forever? Um or are we fortunate enough to be renters forever? You know, I don't think that way. I know you don't think that way, but right. s- some millennials do. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, the big piece to remember is that the vast majority of Minnesotans use a mortgage, which ninety percent, about ninety percent, eighty-eight yep. to ninety percent, depending on the month. Which I know will will sound like a radical, crazy thing to some, but you know, a very small portion of folks pay cash. The mm-hmm. folks that pay cash are price sensitive. The folks who have a mortgage are more payment sensitive. And the crazy thing is, and I should say the interesting thing is about 
um, where we're at today in the market is that even though prices are at an all-time high, payments are not. So from a payment perspective, owning a home is still on sale. That's because mortgage rates have stayed relatively low, correct? And that's because rates are pretty low and still um, what the Fed would call accommodative or, or you know, it's a, it's a really good time to still borrow money. There's some evidence that's changing. We saw that kind of sneak up a little bit and then it kind of calmed back down a little bit. There's some chit-chat about recession uh, late next year or perhaps 2021. I'm not – I don't have a crystal ball on that or I'd be a millionaire. Um, Absolutely. Wouldn't <laughs> so, we all? Wouldn't we all? So, so that one's a little tricky. But uh, you know, I do think we have to normalize rates so that when recession does come and recession will come, um, we have to have some ammunition or tools in our toolbox to combat that. And we don't want to have to have negative interest rates where if I put ten grand in the bank, I have to pay the bank to keep it safe. I'd, right. I'd like them to pay me a premium to borrow my money and loan it out for more than they're paying me. So we, we have to sort of normalize rates eventually so that we, we have some tools in our toolbox to combat the next recession. Any risks you see in the marketplace that consumers should be aware of? Yeah, another good question. Uh, from a consumer standpoint, it's possible home prices take a pause for a year or two. I don't know if that'll happen next year or the one after or, or 2023 or, or what have you. Um, so I, I think there's some risk there, but I think long term, it's still obviously a good investment. And even if we do have a year or two you know, of, of, of sort of weakening pricing, I, that's why every realtor I know tells folks, you know, don't buy a home if you can't stay in it for five years. Of course. And that way you can you can sort of stomach a year or two of declines because you'll be up the other three or four years. Absolutely. So I think that's a big part. And remember, the average time now um, that a typical seller spends in their home has actually risen to 10 years. Well, I think that rings true for me personally. I mean, my wife and I, we bought our first house in uh, 2004. It was supposed to be a five-year house. and. It, it turned into ten because you are. <laughs> we just we were stuck because exactly. of the recession. You know, I I think it makes sense that that things are going to slow down here in the next year. I, I mean, I've been doing this now for fifteen years. Next year will be my sixteenth year in the business. And one trend I have experienced is um, consumer decision making for major financial decisions tends to pause or slow down in election cycles. We ah. see it in presidential election cycles. Yes. You know, people are just, it's not a conscious thing. I think it's a subconscious thing. Like, I'm just going to wait and see what happens before I decide to do whatever it is I'm going to do. Right. Which is more difficult when the election cycle becomes longer and longer and longer. Yes. So true. So true. That's true. That is true. I mean, it, I don't have any data to support that statement, but it just it, it's something that I have felt in my year selling real estate. You know, there's always just been that kind of pause in consumer activity uh, yeah. in an election cycle. I think that's right, although I don't have the evidence to support it. Uh, I have seen some other studies that do show consumer confidence can waver a little bit. And if you're not confident, I'm not spending a quarter million or half a million or more on a house, right. or at least not as quickly, right. or maybe I'll lowball the sellers, or, or you know, maybe I'll waffle on my decision a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think they have gotten longer. Um, I think they've gotten more divisive. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of political risk and uncertainty and, and you know, moving into 2020. And it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. I just – we're more divided than ever. And, and, and that doesn't give folks a lot of confidence that we're going to come together and figure things out. How is Minneapolis-St. Paul doing from an affordability perspective compared to other counterpart cities across the United States? Yes. So this is a critical question. Why? Uh, you're going to buy a home, right? You're going to pay for a roof. 
you've only got so many options. So we like to compare ourselves to our own history, um, and we're actually not still – well, first of all, when you adjust for inflation, we're still not back to bubble levels. If you look at payments, we're still not back to bubble levels. Bubble levels. You're talking about 06, 07, 08, That's right, right. Right, right before the crash, Exactly. Correct? As a percentage of income, there's a lower percentage of pre-tax household earnings that are going toward housing hmm. now than during the last cycle peak. And I think those are three really important things. So relative to our own history, we're actually not at that overstretched level yet, but we are heading toward it, right? Um, People compare us a lot to Austin, Atlanta, Boston, Seattle. Denver. Denver, Seattle. Denver, Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte. I was just going to say Charlotte is a huge one. Um, Not so much Chicago, not so much Miami. New York is a little bit, and LA are a little bit too crazy for us. Sure. Um, But yeah, so relative to those other parts of the country where other people are buying homes, um, we're remarkably affordable. Just don't tell anyone that, right? (laughs) So we shouldn't be podcasting that. (laughs) Well, it's funny. You know, I do a lot of corporate relocation work, and oftentimes I get people that come here and they think that Minnesota is going to be – like they're going to be able to steal a house, right? Right. And usually usually that is, you know, somebody from – like Texas. Okay. You get a lot of house, you get a lot of price per square foot for the dollar down there. So people from Texas come to Minnesota and they get sticker shock. Yep. But then you get someone that might come up here from Chicago and they say, wow, you know what? Your prices are are better than Chicago, but not as good as I thought. Um, You get people that come from the coasts and they're just blown away with what they can get for their money. I'm, I'm working with a couple right now that's coming here from Manhattan and she's just like out of her mind. What am I going to do with all this space? <laughs> so, a dream come true, right? Yeah, right. A lot so, of bang for our buck. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's interesting that you bring up Minneapolis-St. Paul is still maybe one of the top five in in the country. Did you mention that when we spoke last? Or I think we're pretty close. The they're, okay. the only two major metros that that show up in my data that are uh, at a more affordable level based on percentage of income spent on housing yeah. are Indianapolis and Pittsburgh. Oh, go Steelers. Steelers fans, hail, Colts I, fans, Hoosiers. I, I love <laughs> it. I hail from Pittsburgh. I went to the University of Pittsburgh. I love it. Yeah, so we'll have to talk about Ben Roethlisberger's rings afterwards. <laughs> sure. We'll leave that alone. <laughs> yeah, so you know, you look at a city like San Francisco and, and people say, oh, well, it's okay that home prices are so high there because incomes are so much higher. Absolutely. It's true that incomes are higher, but incomes are about 30% higher than here. So a typical family in, in the Twin Cities, uh, a typical household makes about 90, 95 grand a year. In San Francisco, it's about 120, right? So 90 to 120, it's about, it's about 30%, 35% higher. Sure. So that would dictate they could afford a 35% higher sales price. So if we're just shy of 300K, that would mean they could be at about 400K. Oh no no no! They're at 1.6 million on the median. Right. Yeah. So their prices are almost they're they're eight times higher than ours. So 800 percent, but their incomes are only 30 percent higher. That's why the home ownership rate in the Bay Area is 50 percent versus our 73 percent, 75 percent here. Wow. Yeah, it explains a lot. 75 percent home ownership in the seven county metro. Uh, I believe that was for the state as a whole. Oh, state of Minnesota. State as, as a whole. whole yeah. Okay. Versus California at about 50, you know, much less, 50, 55, yeah. 60%. So that's something to be proud of. I mean, the state of Minnesota, 70% plus, 70% plus homeownership rate statewide. That's pretty great. It's pretty darn good. Unemployment rate is around, what, 2, two, two and a half percent. Two and a half percent. Yep. And, and, and um, you know, incomes are strong, right? Pretty In, good. Incomes here are strong. You know, we've got a really great um, 
base of Fortune 500 companies based here in the Twin Cities per capita exactly. compared to anywhere else in the country. So I think those are all positive signs. Definitely. Yeah. And okay. one of the biggest factors, uh, one of the biggest leading indicators of you know housing market performance is, of course, household formations. Right. So guess what? When more people are working, um, you know, they're going to forge new households, and that feeds the demand pipeline. Again, the challenge is demand has come all the way back. It's the supply side that I think we're worried about. Okay. Yeah, so that's they, the challenge. So the message here is people – Put your house on the market, right? Is that what you're saying? If you're in a position to do that, you know, you will be rewarded. You know, people are getting 100%. Some are getting 102. I've even heard of some 105% of their list price. Now, let me tell a little anecdote, a little bit of a personal anecdote. So my brother, uh, he moved to uh, Seattle from uh, from downtown Minneapolis. He switched from Target to Amazon. You know, and, and I think they offered you know seven hundred grand on a five hundred and fifty thousand dollar listing, and what? I don't I don't think they won it. Oh my god. It's wow. pretty crazy. So, so here they we went 150k over asking. Not and, good enough, and they lost. And they lost. Well, that's a multiple offer market. I wouldn't want to be in as a <laughs> if I've ever heard of one. I would love it as an agent, though. That would be fantastic. So, so but everything is relative, right? Like sure. we were talking about with our price and income ratio, we, they they move relative to one another. So, uh, the the question, of course, is, you know, we hear people that uh, you know spent 330 grand on a $300,000 listing, and they were really nervous that they went 10% over. Will it appraise? Uh, will I sure. get my equity back out when I sell? Uh, you know, and, and people are kind of losing their minds over 10, 20, 30 grand or 5 or 10% over when, again, on the coast, it's just a different beast. It's yeah. such a different animal. Well, Midwesterners are more pragmatic. That's right. They're just not willing to, they're not willing to make foolish decisions as a general rule of thumb, right? In general, in general. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, you know, recently we had the Case-Shiller report that came out. A lot of the things that the Case-Shiller report says is happening isn't necessarily true for our local market. Exactly right. And you can see that, you know, kind of the other areas of the country are kind of those extremes and we're more of the average. Yeah. So uh, very much locational. I like to – I have a joke about this. So we're in luck. Uh, I like to say you don't grab an umbrella in Miami based on the weather forecast in Seattle. Right. So the Case-Shiller data, sometimes they'll break out the 10 or 20 you know, markets. And I think that is it, it does have a role to play, although I don't love their repeat sales or matched pairs methodology as much as I like what we're doing with our own MLS data. But just like Marshall said, uh, you know, I don't want someone making a decision to buy a single-family home you know, in, in Blaine or Lakeville here based on a foreclosed condo in the Bay Area, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. So no. don't make local decisions based on national data. However, to follow your analogy, when there's a major storm system out across the Rockies – I might be able to go, boy, I bet in four or five days I might have some rain here. We could pick up a little like bit that. of precip, yeah. Right. I, so, I think that's right. In general, good thing to keep in mind, I'm not sure how much it plays into an individual's decision-making process. Sure. But you're right. If, if the coasts get sick, sometimes we can catch a cold. All right. I got one last question, and then we can wrap up the show. Why aren't people putting their homes on the market? Mm. What is happening? Because all this information is being delivered, Right. But we're still seeing low inventory by comparison. So Very much what's so. going on? Is there a trend that you're you're picking up in your studies of of what's going on in the MLS data and your talk in your conversations with uh, members of the Association of Realtors? What is it? Why aren't homeowners putting their homes on the market? I think it really comes down to a, a big, huge game of musical chairs. Sure. When the music stops, I got to have somewhere to sit or. 
more accurately, rest my head at night. Yeah. And so I'm concerned, you know, I don't want to put my home on the market if I can't find one of, of equal or better quality at, at the same or similar price. Again, monthly recurring payment, you know, sure. as part of my budget, 20, 30, whatever percent of your budget it is. So um, that game of musical chairs has caused the, the, the supply valve of the market to sort of seize up um, because I'm not as incentivized because I don't have so many options to move up into. Or if I'm a downsizing baby boomer, an empty nester, I don't have single level townhomes to downsize to. We right. have totally failed as a region to produce that. So think about baby boomers, empty nesters. They're staying around in their 3,000 square foot, five bedroom homes. Because they're comfortable there. Because they're comfortable and it's paid for and they like their community and their library and the little school you know nearby and the park. People are aging in place. The baby boomers, which are a huge generation, a huge population, uh, that's one of the things. Um, for now, sellers are really enjoying the write-up in prices, right? Yeah. Fear and greed drive the market, more so with stocks than housing, at least I hope. Uh, that's sure. changed a lot from 05, 06, where I think greed, fear and greed were kind of driving the market. Right. Um, so I think folks are enjoying that write-up. Um, you know, some folks still believe they're underwater. I would tell those folks they should talk with an agent because odds are they're not. I think a CoreLogic report showed uh, 96% of homeowners in Minnesota have positive equity in their home. 96%. Wow, that's an amazing stat. It's an amazing stat. Yeah, I think it was 95.8% to be precise there. What a swing from just, you know, six years ago. Big time. So so we talked about move up, uh, and the move up market is a little bit better than the move down market, right? We talked about a little bit before the show that tale of two markets. Yes. Uh, where you have some pressure on the high end because it's overbuilt, but you still have pretty, uh, pretty strong and, and robust competition at the entry level or the affordable brackets because it's underbuilt. So we just haven't been doing enough new construction to give me the confidence to list my home and then go get something new. Wow. Um, so yeah, that's a challenge. You know, uh, there's a perception that some folks still think they need 20% down. Most folks aren't doing 20% down. Some are, and that's fine. If mm-hmm. you can get to it and scrub that PMI off, of course that makes sense. But a lot of folks are going FHA uh, route and putting down three, three and a half percent. Okay. So it's all a matter of what you can do. Yeah. But I really think it gets down to that game of musical chairs where there's just not enough supply sloshing around out there to give me the confidence that, you know, I can find the next home, you know, for my either growing family or if I'm a downsizer, my, my shrinking household. David, as always, it's a pleasure to see you. I love my talking honor. with you. Marshall, thanks for uh, hosting us and uh, that'll that'll do it for the show. Thanks a lot. A great show. Thanks. This has been the Tom Mecky Real Estate Podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are Tom Mecky's alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Minnesota Podcasting or Lake Sotheby's International Realty. Tom Mecky is a licensed real estate broker in the state of Minnesota and can be found online at tommeckey.com. That's T-O-M-M-E-C-K-E-Y.com. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com.